Welcome to Pitchside Perspective Podcast with your hosts Stuart Sharples and Jack Colazar. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Pitchside Perspective Podcast. Buckle up because in this episode we're going on a journey around the world. We have a special guest who's bringing different cultures to this pod and sharing his wealth of knowledge from Ireland to Cambodia and beyond. Our special guest, Conor Nesta, currently at the helm at Hyderabad FC in the Indian Super League, joins us as we discuss coaching around the world. Talking about worldies, Jack, how are you, mate? Uh, yeah, good morning. How are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm working on those introductions for you. I'm struggling. But uh, seeing as this one's uh, early in the morning, um, I've gone for a dark Colombian instead of a beer. Yeah. Coffee. Yes, coffee. Confirming okay. that dark Colombian coffee, not a not someone else. I think my missus yeah, will be yeah. angry. Well, those me. introductions are the highlight of my week. Just waiting to hear how I'm going to be introduced each week, Stu. And well, you there's know, so many ways we down. can introduce. So many ways we can introduce you. So I, uh, I've got a plethora of knowledge behind me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any uh, drink of choice? Any coffee? Any tea for you? No, I just had a nice a cup of English tea. PG Yorkshire. Yorkshire, obviously. Got to be Yorkshire. Um, so yeah, my turn this week to ask the question. Um, I've gone for a tough one this week. Can you name the six PFA Player of the Year players that have never won the Premier League? Yeah. So, so any, any from the Premier League era, from '93 to today, yep, six PFA Player of the Year players that have never won the Premier League. Okay. So have a little think. Um, this this is a tough one. So have a little think, and uh, we'll come back. Um, but no, as I as I mentioned obviously in the intro, uh, we have a a very special guest coming on, um, in Connor Nesta, and uh, really pleased to have you have you on, Connor. Oh, my pleasure, boys. Great to speak to you today. This uh, obviously the time difference is a big one, ten and a half hours. So I uh, know we appreciate it. Um, but as usual, we'll uh, we'll kick off with Jack's quick fire questions. Yes, Connor, five little quick or not so quick fire questions for you. Name? Connor Nestor. Does it get easier than that? After? <laughs> uh, favorite team? I grew up supporting Arsenal. Yeah. Okay, Arsenal. Uh, favorite, favorite ever sporting memory? Uh, probably going to watch Ireland with my dad as a kid. Yeah. Or Ireland home games were special. Very nice. Uh, favorite ever kit? Um, I think it was if you remember the one when Arsenal's last year in Highbury, they had a kind of a, a maroon one, which was a throwback to, like I think the first year of the club. So there was this kind of maroon one with kind of old-fashioned soft colors, um, and yeah, it was Henri's last season as well. So probably as much about kind of um, nostalgia, I guess. Uh, than than the jersey, but the, I like the jersey too. Yeah, was that the one with the like the gold or two logo in the middle? Yeah, yeah, that's it exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the, yeah, the brand nice placement one. worked on you, whereas I was gone for the history. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was getting drawn in by the sponsors. Um, yeah. <laughs> last question: uh, best player seen live? Yeah. So the best player, like in my opinion, Messi is the best player to ever play the game, and I've seen him live. Uh, so in a way, that's that's the answer but it was a friendly game so I feel like it wasn't like I didn't really see him if that makes sense so 
I think the best live performance I ever saw was was right being against Portugal uh, when Ireland qualified for the 2002 World Cup. So, so showing my age there, but that was the best performance from a player I saw live. Uh, but Messi, Messi for me, the best. Yeah, Messi is a, a popular answer always on that I question. I imagine so, yeah, yeah. And I, I think we've also had that same kit answer too, right? Yeah, who was uh, it? The Arsenal one. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think it was um, Tommy, right? Yeah, yeah. Probably in the kid. Yeah, nice, nice kid, I have to say. Yeah. That was that was when Arsenal were properly bossing it. Not 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 like they are today, but back in the back in their heyday. Yeah, I know. So like I say, nostalgia, you know, it's got me there big time on the jersey, I think. So yeah, so yeah, Arsenal were uh, growing up as a kid being an Arsenal fan, I thought maybe being Irish you would have been a United fan. I would I would have hoped for that that United connection. Yeah, it's a weird one. I grew up like in a in a housing estate, and everyone was United or, or Liverpool. And and um, uh, a friend of mine across the street started supporting Arsenal. And I don't know if you remember that. Probably when he started supporting Arsenal, it was like David O'Leary, Liam Brady, etc. And then he dragged me into an era where it wasn't wasn't there wasn't really that Irish connection. But um, yeah, I, I'm glad he did because you know, kind of mid. 90s, early 90s, Arsenal was not a bad team to be following. Yeah, so, so Connor is a an Arsenal fan, and as a manager, uh, how do you feel about these kind of recent uh, events with Arsenal and Mikel Arteta and his and his outbursts recently? The VR and stuff like that. Yeah, it's it's. I'll be honest with you, actually, and like I can make this maybe very relevant to me at the moment in terms of. Um, I'm in a league at the moment that has like Owen Kyle, Simon Grayson, you know, obviously far more experienced managers than me. And, and they're, I suppose, coming to this league with the knowledge of, you know, that level, uh, you know, Premier League and Championship. And I always think that there's, as a head coach, you need to be careful about perception because, you know, it's cliche, but perception is kind of reality a little bit. And like I know here in this league, like Owen Kyle, who's an absolute gentleman, by the way, on the touchline, he's so animated. You know, that's just him being him. He's he's larger than life kind of character. He loves the game. He's passionate about it. So he's animated, you know. Um, and there's other ones that are kind of just sitting, sit down and take their notes. And like for me, it's not like right or wrong in that way. But to get back to the point on perception is like when you're a young manager like Arteta, um, you can't jump up and down in the touchline because that's you like not having control of your emotions. But you know Pep can do it, but Arteta can't. Uh, so I think there is a little bit of that narrative. Uh, having said that, like when you see both sides of the coin recently in terms of what Arteta did and I think what Liverpool did with the VAR, I just wouldn't be a fan of going down that route. Um, and probably what Ange Postecoglou did as much as it hurts me to say as an Arsenal fan, but, um, you know, I, I'd be more on the Ange side of things in terms of, like, look, get on with it, and yes, try and improve the game in all, all its facets, but maybe not everything is best done in public, I would say, you know, that, like, write your letters and, and do what you have to do, but I, I don't necessarily feel it's, it's great for the game in terms of, uh, you know, it's, well, it is great for the game because people talk about it and it's a drama, isn't it? But, like, I prefer the game itself to the actual drama, you know? Yeah. Um, but 
but I, I think, look, all of us probably just as fans definitely fed up with um, how VAR is being used in the Premier League in particular, I think. You know, it's probably not being used brilliantly in, in many places, uh, but I think the Premier League are butchered it at the moment from, from just my, my view as a fan, you know, that they're... And it's, it seems to be communication, you know, when they when they release the audios, it's embarrassing, isn't it? It's like it's like listening to like a, a black box audio from a plane that crashed, you know. It's kind of I don't know, is it a technology problem or more of a like they haven't figured out to use it properly yet, I think, you know. That's what I mean. I think it's one of those that are you are we blaming the technology or the people behind the technology? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like you look at that audio from the other week and there's nothing wrong with VAR. It's a case of the the on-field communication going on there, and and Howard yeah. Webb keeps coming out and rightly so, like backing up his his referees, which you're gonna you're gonna do, you're gonna look after. But it's what like you look at like the rugby and where the the refs are mic'd up, and you, I think the fans would appreciate hearing um, what the refs are saying. And, and it's it's gone now to the the direction of. Only the captain can speak to the referee now, which I agree with. But yeah. sometimes the referees even waving away the captains, and then now as coaches, and you're probably finding this yourself. Now managers and coaches are getting yellow cards and red cards because they're not even allowed to talk. So we're in this grey area where who is allowed to talk? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, a hundred percent. Like uh, th- that is something that that upsets me on the touchline when I when I talk to the fourth official and and like I mean talk. Uh, you know, not not shout or not be disrespectful or anything, and and you're talking and you're asking a question. Okay, maybe we are being a bit snotty in terms of we might actually not answer that question, but we're asking the question so that the referee can talk in his mic back to the fourth official, so that we can gain some knowledge on how the rest of this game is going to be refereed. Because I think Robbie is a great example in the one that you've given, Stuart, because. They talk a lot of, in rugby about how the referee interprets the rules, um, and just kind of they look at it. You know, that's that's players, organizations looking at it from the referee's perspective, which I think is very alien in football, probably because football's so tribal and you know it's it's um, uh, just so entrenched, I guess that. You know, we're never really looking at it, are we, from from the referee's perspective a lot of the time, um, and, and and we seem very far from doing that, to be honest. Yeah, and no, I think in terms of it being tribal, you hit the nail on the head there. In terms of, it's everyone's very opinionated, and it's their opinion, opinion or nothing else. And but you, like I watched the the recent Rugby World Cup and the referees that were behind the monitor up in the booth and they're saying, well, this is our opinion. What's your opinion? It's almost like a conversation. Whereas it, it just seems like listening to the audio in the Premier League is so robotic. It's like they're, they're very scared to make a, a, a mistake. So it's now almost gone the robotic avenue of like abiding by the rules where it, it, you have to, like, for example, the Romero red card. Uh, no, the the Curtis Jones red card the other week. Yeah, it's a red card. But then you're looking at it going, well, has he actually gone through the ball? Like, has it been a slip? And it's like, no, now it's just black or white. It's foul or no foul. And it just seems yeah. like there's different rules every week, which I'm sure for you is frustrating. There's different levels of pressure, though, isn't there, from on a rugby referee compared to a Premier League referee, um, which definitely affects the way they communicate and the amount of eyes that's on that situation. And the other thing, too, is I think... 
in soccer, there's all and rugby too. To be fair, it's always going to be subjective. Even the example you used there with the Curtis Jones, I would say it was a red card. I think you said it did, it wasn't a red card. The point of the VAR isn't to needle between opinions. It's was there a clear and obvious mistake or not? And I think that's sometimes what we forget. Even with the Arsenal goal, to a certain extent, I think the majority of people thought it was a foul on the defender on Saliba. But there was also a minority that didn't think it was a foul. So in that case, is it a clear and obvious error then? Um, so yeah. they, they could argue that they got it right. Yeah, I was just trying to get some Liverpool fans on my side, to be fair. <laughs> never. That's never going to happen. Best of luck with that one. Only yeah. to agree to that rematch, Stu. Yeah. yeah. I No, I'd be a fan, like, and I know, if, again, football fans and football heritage and all the rest of it are not normally big on, like, taking ideas from other sports, but I'd be a fan of the flag on the play type situation where, you know, your analysts are viewing it and you get one and a half as a coach and then it's up to you, like, whether you think, is that going to go in our favour? Is that the biggest mistake this referee is going to make in this half? And it doesn't cut out, it doesn't cut out the error, but at least after the game then, as a coach, actually, I can't put pressure on the referee because, you know, I, I had my picks, if you like. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, that's that's how I read the Ange situation in his post-match interview in terms of like, you know, is it good for the game if we keep going in this direction? Uh, like, is it is it actually going to be better? And totally accept what you're saying, Jack, in terms of like, the, it's a, it's a, you know, the Robbie referees, they're coming up through a different tradition and then there isn't the same amount of eyes, there isn't the same amount of money, etc. Um, um, so yeah, I think I think it's it is. Who would want to be a Premier League referee at the end of the day? I mean, you, you'd want your head checked. Yeah, nice. Sod, sod being a referee in uh, in any facet, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. But yeah, uh, I come on, I want to. Uh, I refereed an under 11s game this weekend. I felt the pressure on that one as well. <laughs> You've oh, already got dogs think, abuse. They, they might they might be the hardest, you know, because like the the parents parents as we know at that level can be vicious you know i hope you dressed up as a referee as well no it was a, a last second emergency call up so i just let him play i didn't blow the whistle much it was a physical match it's good dishing out yellow cards left right and center brilliant so yeah so connor i would love to uh kind of take a trip down memory lane and uh just start with how you got into coaching and, and that start of the journey yeah i suppose the short answer is i was a fair, failed player um, you know, and that's that's probably uh, many many coaches' stories. Um, no, I I, I um, was an okay youth footballer, and and I got some opportunities under fifteen level, which around that time in Ireland was a critical level because you had to try and break into the Ireland team, and then you might get a chance to to go to England. There wasn't much happening in Ireland by the way of coaching and academies at that time. Thankfully, thankfully that's changed. And it was really about, you know, getting on the, I was going to say the plane, but it was probably the boat uh, to England back then. Uh, and if you didn't, kind of, it was make or break. So I had, like like every guy you've ever met in the pub, I had trials <laughs> to play for Ireland as a, as a 15-year-old. And, uh, long, you know, long story short, I wasn't good enough, but it, it inspired me as a 17-year-old just to coach my local under-14s team in terms of when I got to that level, I definitely saw lots of players that were better than me. And I also saw lots of players that clearly had been coached. Whereas, you know, I was in that 
you know, those normal teams where it was somebody's dad took the team and uh, they were normally great people to take the team for many reasons, but, you know, they weren't a qualified football coach. Um, so I decided it would be good if a 17-year-old did the job instead of instead of uh, someone's dad. Uh, and yeah, I, I didn't really go into it with any, like, uh, dreams or ambitions. It was just, I'd, I'd like to have a go at taking care of some of the kids in my area and if they get to the level I got to, I'd like to help them, you know, jump over that hurdle. Um, and I think about 12 months in, I, I caught the bug. I was very lucky with the group of players I had that they, they were very patient with me while I was doing all the things you shouldn't do. Um, and then, yeah, started climbing the coaching ladder in terms of badges and stuff like that. And it, eventually it became my occupation. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've, a similar story to me like I started young with the coach and badges because it was one of those where we didn't have the experience so the only way of gaining knowledge was getting on the, the local courses yeah. and yeah. but it kind of provides you with that platform and that foundation to really kick on um and like Jack and myself are similar in terms of like yeah we wanted to be players at the at an early age but you kind of soon realize that if you can't do that then coaching's the next best thing um yeah. So then when you started getting onto your, your coaching badges, is that where it kind of opened your eyes to the coaching world? Yeah, it's tricky because um, the guy that was doing the coaching licenses, uh, I think I was a year coaching and I got asked to come and coach some of, as an assistant to coach some of the kind of elite teams in the region. That, that In England, there'd be like county teams, county schools. But in Ireland, it's a much bigger deal because the pro clubs actually at that stage weren't actually having any academies because the best players were leaving and going to England. So they weren't investing in youth players. They were trying to catch them when they came back and they hadn't met it. Um, so yeah, I was asked to kind of coach at that level after 12 months. And the guy who was doing the coaching courses kind of asked me to coach in summer camps and stuff like that. So I kind of became a part-time coach and then was doing other stuff as well. Um, and I was lucky, I would say that like, you know, the only person I knew that was working full time in the game was the guy that was delivering those courses. He was working for the FAI. He went on to be the first, uh, analyst actually that the Irish team had Brian Kerr when he got the job in, I don't know, was it 2004 around that time? Maybe Brian Kerr took him in, um, to be the first analyst. And it was, you know, before White Scout and all of these things. So he was kind of ahead of his time and he was a really good coach, really good coach educator. Brian McCarthy was his name. And yeah, I, I thought I was doing okay, you know, as a coach. And then I saw these, this guy put on sessions and I was like, oh, you know, there's, there's a whole other world here for me to discover. Um, and that was like the art of coaching itself, never mind football as a game. Um, so yeah, it, it, it definitely like, you know, my my curiosity peaked as soon as I started doing a found, foundation level course. And then it was a case of like, not did I want to do more courses, but how quickly could I get on as many as possible and um, put the ideas into practice? Yeah, you, you touch on a good point there in terms of like, we do these courses early and it's almost similar to, to learning how to drive a car. Like you go through the structure of how to do it, but then when you actually get in that car for the first time, it's about 
similar to coaching when you see the the experienced coaches who they might not be doing it by the book but you see in the the management side of things how they're interacting and the things that you don't really get in that course but you get yeah. it through that real life experience i'm sure you got some really good um insight from like learning from older coaches right a hundred percent and i was lucky as well that some of the kind of the the grassroots level coaches that because I think, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I was leading my own teams. So I was in, in, in charge of what was happening there, if you like. And that's a great way to learn. And then I was being assistants in other setups and, and learning, like you said, from others, from what they were doing. And uh, I think one of the first things that you pick up is, uh, you know, the best coaches are very authentic. They, they deliver it in their they're being themselves while the coach. And I think players really pick up on that. And if, you know, it's, it's, it can't be like an act. Um, um, and so there's things that you can take from other coaches. But I think the biggest one is like that the best ones are themselves first, first and foremost. Um, uh, and then the skills you get with, with the experience and with putting in the man hours. Yeah, and I think at both ends of the spectrum, you get found out by the the ten, eleven, twelve year olds if you're not really being real. But now at the at the top level of the game, you get found out just as quick by the players if you're putting on some type of act. Um, but so from yeah. from Ireland, what was your your next step in the journey? So you know, my my problem in Ireland was pathways, not many opportunities. Uh, even now in Ireland, and the game has advanced a lot. I would say. There's probably in name 13 professional clubs in Ireland, but in reality, I would say six full-time professionals uh, clubs in terms of like the support network. Uh, so that's a very limited opportunity, obviously. So in 2007, I, I decided to join a company that, you know, you guys in, under a different guys now or a different name are working for called UK Elite. And uh, which are based in the United States. And the main reason I wanted to go really was it was a promise of about a thousand hours coaching in nine months. And that's that's like, you know, there was, I think there was, well, I, I now know uh, there was other guys that were going for the fun. Uh, I was definitely going for, for the hours of, of, you know, I need to find out what my way is because I don't get the coach enough. Um, uh, and I have to say, you know, that experience was brilliant. And then luckily, I've been full-time in the game ever since, you know, so, and, and I think Luke has had a lot to do with it. Yeah, and no, I think there's no organization or place in the world that can give you that amount of experience and coaching hours. Like you said, you're there for a nine-month contract and you're getting a 1,000 contacts yeah. of hours. You're not going to be able to do that back home, especially not getting paid as well. But yeah, you're right in terms of I'm sure people were out here. and Well, we know for a fact people out here for fun and people out here for the coaching. We could probably have a whole podcast series based on the stories of UK Elite. That would be probably a good one to do. Um, but kind of sum up your experience with UK Elite. Like what was kind of like your big learning points that along that journey of that, that contract? Well, firstly, that, that whole other podcast, it would have to be fake names. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I don't think you could give real names. Um, we'd have or, to get the bleep or, machine working as well probably for that one <laughs> yeah the redacted that would be the redacted uh, podcast um no listen like i mean honestly i'm not saying it because i'm I, i'm on the podcast with you guys but like what a company because um 
to to one extent they were just giving you the keys to the castle if you like in terms of you're in charge these are your teams this is what you do and i think you know that is the best way to learn uh but they were also had great support network in terms of uh, continuous professional development the the courses that we did when we first arrived in terms of this is this program this is how we run it etc um the visits from you know the guys then that are doing what you guys are doing now for the cpd and you know cpd is a, can be a great selling point i think to like people that are going to come and work for you but then in my experience in a lot of companies it's not very good uh when when they actually do it uh but no i like it was uh steve jones and pat Mc, pat mccary i think that that came and saw me quite a few times in my nine months there and uh and i got to see them coach as well because we had the option of going and watching them coach from time to time not just on the the workshops but i went and watched them coach their teams and uh you know you you learned so much at that time that you you forgot what you learned if if that makes sense and few few years later you might have been doing a session that you saw and you're like oh where where did i see that or you created habits in terms of um structures or questions or layouts or demonstrations whatever it might be but um no it was a super experience and and uh then as well the support network just in terms of you know the different uh people in management like uh, we spoke off air about Brody and like you knew you could call them if you needed to and you know it was a, it was a lot of young staff as well all thrown into the same house which maybe uh, wasn't always the best idea um but um no it was brilliant brilliant organization and, and, and like i think you can see you know a lot of coaches uh really developed and have gone on to really high level uh, and I, i i think they'd all speak really highly of uk elite you know because you had hours you had professional development you had coach education we did a, a c license from brazil the year i was there and it, honestly i'm on my pro license right now and that course was the most intense course i've ever done you know the tutor uh, today or gonçalves i think i've definitely butchered his name there by the way not just you Stuart that did it um so, so but yeah he was so intense but my god I learned so much um you know it, it was it was terrific great experience yeah no it's that type of platform can really set a coach up for life almost and there's been many coaches like yourself who have kind of used UK Elite as that platform and then gone on to the biggest facets of the game um currently coaching you've got we've got players uh former UK leaders in the MLS. We've got them around the world like yourself. But then even those that maybe have the choice of going and then wanting to stop coaching, I, I still think there's so many life lessons you can learn. Yeah, it's almost yeah. like, it's like college, right? Like I went to, I came out of UK elite when I was 18 and it's almost like you're learning the degree of life. Like you're learning how to live with people, how to do your banking and stuff like that. So yes, it's about the coaching element, but there's so much you learn from just... And I would say this probably to any young coach, just getting out there and getting as much experience as you can. Because like you said, you're dealing with so many different areas of the game, dealing with parents, dealing with coaches, dealing with players. It just opens your eyes to so much that I'm sure even now you're probably somewhat referencing back in your time at UK Elite to some of the situations you might have now of just dealing with people. 
Oh, massively, massively. I, I remember actually going, I won't say where, but it was a long trip to where we were coaching this team and I did all the work beforehand in terms, I, so this is my first session I'm getting ready for and I rang the parent coach and I asked him about each kid and blah, blah, blah and what he wanted me to do and all the rest of it and, um, you know, I was looking for as much information he, as he'd give me because I'd never met him before. And I remember that, like, the first session was just such a nightmare. Like, it was, like, you don't think of a sin bin or anything like that in your first session with kids. You think, like, they'll see what your barriers are. And I'm like, this is chaos. And then I remember speaking to the coach afterwards, and I'm like, is this normal? And and then he started to, like, confide in me, this kid has, like, uh, this symptom, and then this kid actually has a physical issue here and blah, blah, blah. And I, all of a sudden I was like, oh, like, you know, I, I, I needed to know those things. Yeah. But like, I remember just coaching that team, actually. Uh, I had them for two different seasons, um, fall and spring, I think. And uh, God, I learned so much as a coach because you were like, uh, how do I develop this session for these kids? You know, that is, coaching is definitely not a one size fits all and and like that's the case at every level like i've gone from a pro team in cambodia to a pro team in india and like putting on the same sessions will not work um sometimes it's technical or tactical but i think most of the time it's on the mental side in terms of if i frame it that way with these guys like it won't go as well as it did with the other guys um and and that's why, like, you know, you just have to constantly evolve. And, yeah, I think that evolution, if you like, like you said, on and off the pitch of, you know, opening bank accounts, living on your own, cooking for yourself, all this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, for me, it started there, you know, and I, uh, it was really, really important step in my career. Yeah, and it's it's almost like a a culture shock, right? From going and coaching back home to then coaching in the States. When you first come out, you probably think to yourself, oh, it's probably going to be fairly similar, but boy, you're yeah. in for a lesson, right? In that first session, yeah. you turn up and you're like, have I made the right decision here? Um, but yeah, there's definitely that big culture difference. So then moving on from the United States, where I know I listened, we were speaking before that maybe Australia was a, an option for you, but and uh, I'm going back home. So what kind of happened next in the journey? So after UK Elite, I ended up working for the Football Association in Ireland for, for almost a decade. Um, and it was kind of one of those where, if you like, it was, like I had difficulty when I was about 21 explaining to my parents that I wanted to be a football coach because they didn't know any football coaches. And like I even didn't know any football coach. The guy that was doing the, the, the courses I spoke about was a football development officer. So... Yeah, in 2018, I got an opportunity to basically do a similar role to what he was doing. And uh, in Ireland, that's a very multifaceted job. You'd run a regional centre. There's 12 regional centres that link into the national team. So you're dealing with a lot of elite players before they get into the national team and then trying to maintain them when they're at national team level, maybe before they go to the UK. Uh, you were a coach educator. You were running the coach education courses up to a certain level. And then you were in charge of kind of clubs and leagues in terms of like, can you foster and develop to grow the football through like improving the structures? Um, and then you were also a social worker a little bit in terms of we set up a lot of programs 
like you have in England where the community-based programs where you're trying to kind of use football as a, as a medium for kind of positive social change. So it was a job where you had to wear a million hats. And I think I, I stayed there just the right amount of time in terms of, you know, wearing all those hats really developed you as an individual and developed you as a coach uh, because you had to be a politician today. You had to be a social worker tomorrow, a coach the day after. Um, maybe you were in schools the day after that, so you were a teacher. So wearing all those different hats, I, I think if you do it for too long, you become a generalist um, um, and you don't get to become kind of a specialist. Um, but I think becoming a generalist to start with is 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 really good because the thing about being when you do become a head coach is you have to have that empathy of all the different people in the different departments and the roles and the jobs that they do. And also you have to understand the different backgrounds that your players are coming from. And uh, it was, it was, you know, looking back now, it was an incredible job because um, it was a frustration not getting the same group of players every, every day and, and playing on a weekend. Um, but looking back, it, it was probably the best thing for me. Um, so, yeah, so I stayed there for a very long time. And then in 2015, uh, January 2016, I, I handed in six months notice. Uh, I think they were a bit shocked because it, it's kind of is a job for life when you get in, once you work hard. Um, and yeah, I, at that point, I decided, look, I, I, I want to be a full time coach that uh, I, I've I've tried to develop the game here as much as I can and I'm happy with some things, but I could have stayed till I was 70 and be unhappy, still unhappy with the progress, if that makes sense. Um, and yeah, so then, then the journey happened again. I went to the States for a little bit. I thought maybe I'd become a director of coaching or something in the States. I popped around to different MLS clubs and USL clubs, just kind of looking for my next project. Then a friend of mine, in Australia rang me. Uh, I went there for six months as a tourist, really, because I wasn't sure. Um, didn't really like the football environment, but fell in love with Australia. So he went to sponsor me for two years to run a coaching academy, not, not too dissimilar to UK Elite. And a friend of mine said, oh, look, while you're waiting for your visa, go to Cambodia. Um, it's a great place to kind of just lay your hat while you're waiting for the visa to come through. And uh, while I was laying my hat, I coached the semi-pro team. Semi-pro team got a couple of results they shouldn't have. And then one of the top pro teams in the country asked me to be a head coach. And uh, so, yeah, and it, it's something that happened to me many times. I wanted to go back to UK Elite and the FDI gave me an opportunity and I was like, changed plans. And then I was going to Australia and, and Swyrean gave me an opportunity and, uh, and I changed plans again. So. Um, probably uh, a strange, random kind of journey. Uh, but yeah, I, would, I wouldn't change it. I was going to say, what a whirlwind of a journey that is, right? In terms of you pretty yeah. much hit going around the world. So in terms of you've gone from yeah. America, back home to obviously Ireland, back out to America a little bit, then Australia. Um, what kind of, obviously you wanted to get into the head coach um, role, but what kind of stuck out from going from, let's say back home to the likes of Cambodia, like what was, what made you want to stay in Cambodia and coach there? Because I think you would agree, not many 
British coaches you would say are going out even to that part of the world. So what kind of mm. made you want to stay? It's a very random one because <clears throat> when I made the decision to leave the FAI, I remember saying to a friend of mine, look, I don't care if I end up in Guam, so long as you, you give me the same bunch of players every day and I get a chance to see in the weekend if, if, if we can perform or not. Um, and, uh, you know, it was almost as far as Guam in the end. It was Cambodia. So, um, yeah, so it, it was one of those where I was very deliberate in my actions in leaving Ireland. And then I would say kind of got distracted with the lifestyle in Australia and went, oh, maybe I could go down the football business route and just have a good life. Um, but then, honestly, when, when, uh, when the opportunity to, to be a head coach of a pro team came up, I thought about it for about 60 seconds and, and said, yes, you know. Uh, yeah, there's, there's no it, better I, feeling, right, than getting those three points and fighting for those three points that kind of stick with you. Yeah, it's, I don't know what that book is. I read it a long time ago, but Living on Top of the Volcano, I think that's the name of the book, about like the pressure of being a head coach and that like, you know, it's not a, probably a healthy job. But it's addictive, isn't it? That feeling of, of at any level, I think, player, coach, when when you win a football match, it's a, it's a special feeling. And uh, when kind of the, the weight of expectation of winning football games in the modern era is, is kind of all planted on the head coach, isn't it? Because he's normally the first person to get sacked when it's not going well. So, um, so yeah, living on top of the vol volcano is the life that I chose, I guess, when I got that opportunity in Cambodia and um, I'm still on the volcano at the moment, just in a different country. So, so Connor, where, where do you think that comes from? So, you know, you had the option to obviously go back in a, you had a great position in Ireland, you had the option yeah. to live in a great place in Australia, and yeah. you chose to live on top of that volcano. Where do you think that, that want of being in that high pressure situation to have that responsibility, where do you think that stems from? Probably ego, I would say, uh, being honest, uh, that I, I, you know, the reasons I got into coaching, as I explained er earlier, were, were kind of genuinely Disney-esque, you know, help people in my community and, you know, all kind of my parents were volunteers in different organizations, so there was a family history there, and so I did go into it for those reasons, but then it's a special feeling, isn't it, when you're a coach and you get to make all these decisions and when you get it wrong, it feels horrible because you feel responsible for, you know, the development of young people or how the fans feel when they go home, whatever it might be. Um, but it's an ego thing. You feel like you can do it. Obviously you feel like you can make the difference. And uh, when you are making the difference and, and when teams are winning and everyone's going home happy and it's thousands of people, it's, it's pretty damn good feeling. Um, but you have to accept, you know, when you're on the journey that the absolute opposite end of the kind is going to happen probably just as much. Um, and that's that's the trade-off, really. And I think, you know, it's a great job. I think, Stuart, you mentioned it about, like, second best thing, isn't it? If you can't be a player. But but it's one of those where, and I said it, I, I met the fans here recently. We kind of had a, a fans forum, forum and I, met, I sat, sat with them, answered their questions and stuff. And uh, one of the things I said to him is you have to realise that footballers are some of the biggest football fans in the world because they're stuck with the game when everyone else 
left the ball alone and went in. You know, that, that obsession with the football, with the game has got them to this level. And I think it's the same as a coach that you have to absolutely love the game because on the bad days, it's not worth it if you don't. Um, but on the good days, it's great. Yeah, no, it's that that buzz that I don't think any job in the world can really give you. And I think we've we've all had those moments at any level, like even with us, say, in the States of coaching like a local team, that buzz of just that final whistle going and you've won the game. There's no greater feeling than that. And seeing what you've done on the on the training pitch that then translate to a game, like you said, having the same group of players week in, week out, you just see a huge difference. And that's I think that I think that's what really drives us to do the job that we do. Um so then as a as an Irish lad in Cambodia, how was uh, the first few months as uh, that journey began? Yeah, it was like um I remember my first six weeks in Cambodia before I even got offered the job. I was like, I'd never been in Southeast Asia before. And I was like, where am I? I'm like, this is, this is a different planet, not a different continent. Um, and then things start to kind of settle down a bit. And, and you realize that when you go to different places, it's not about is it better or worse. It's about what's different here. And what do I like about what's different? And, and you try to levitate towards that. Um, and then manage the bits maybe that that are different that that you're not so fond of, um, but yeah. Then as soon as you become a head coach, it all becomes about the football. And my first year was rocky to say the least. I think we we won two, drew two, lost two in my first six games, and had a riot in the seventh game. So yeah, the we hadn't worked on the riot in training that week, so I was a little bit shocked uh, when it happened. So yeah, year one was uh to put it mildly, um, didn't go according to plan, um, but I I did many things. I now know looking back, I did many things at the very infancy of my relationship with the CEO and talking about a vision and talking about the consistency of approach towards that vision, um, where I I probably you know managed up in the early process of, you know this is what I'm about. And it helped me when when the results weren't great in year one, and and when when there was riots. Uh, thankfully, someone else got blamed for the riot. I just had to kind of tidy up the mess. Um, and yeah, I mean that ended that ended in the following season with us topping the Fair Play Award, which I think was a dramatic change, and and winning the league after a thirty three game unbeaten run. So it, it was like the the club really backed me and and like what we were talking about earlier, you have a clear kind of vision of what you think needs to happen. But when you become a head coach at a professional level, so many people need to back you for that to happen. You know, one thing I would have learned as a grassroots coach is getting the parents behind you or the administrators of the club behind you and stuff like that. But realistically, if you're a damn good good, uh, grassroots coach, you can be successful and not get those things behind you actually um when I, when you're coaching at a professional level like you need those people to back you or you haven't got a hope um and yeah so we we, we kind of the adaptation was slow i guess the answer to your question is a long answer but we we did adapt we did adapt in the in the end yeah i think the 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 relationship between obviously from that grassroots era back at in America and back home in Ireland, where you're developing that relationship with parents, it now transforms and you're developing that relationship with 
your backroom staff, with the fans, with the community. Um, how did how did the local Cambodian fans of your team kind of take to a, a guy from Ireland coming out and taking the team? Like, what was the the general like relationship around you and the the idea? Um, it was difficult in the beginning. I'm not going to lie that you know they 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 didn't see what I was trying to do. Um, some of the players early on didn't see what I was trying to do because it was it was different to what they were used to. Um, and you know, changing habits is a difficult thing to do. Even you know, if I want to change habits in my own life, I have to convince myself. Uh, so sometimes when you're trying to change habits of a whole organization um, and, you know, part of that organization, their job is just to look at you for 90 minutes in the week. Um, yeah, it's, that's a difficult task, but, um, you know, they still, they did stick with us and uh, it was like, there was fireworks. I think when we literally fireworks, when we lifted the league in 2019, not riots and, and, the fans looked like they were enjoying the the fireworks and 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 the, the trophy more than more than the riot. So, I, it it is one of those things sometimes that you have to deliver and then people believe, as opposed to ask people to believe in you before they've they've seen the end product of it. Um, um. But yeah, like in the end, I was lucky in Cambodia where at the end of five years. I was very fortunate in that a lot of people rode in behind what we wanted to do. You know, the vision that I sold to the CEO and the owner was we're going to build a football club. We're going to try and have the best academy in the country, the best training ground, the best analysis department, the best recruitment. And at that time, they didn't have any of those things and maybe even know what some of them were, the best sports science, best medical, etc. And we're going to do it, obviously, bit by bit. Um, and we're going to try and win on, on the field. Um, and when 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 I left, you know, I got asked to be part of the recruitment process for the next coach, which I think is like a hell of a compliment. Um, and and it it was a uh, an ex Barcelona B coach uh, who had been working in China at a, at a, at a, I think it was at City Group actually, um, who decided he wanted to come to the club because he could see uh, how much support they gave to me. And also, you could see that they developed their own training ground, their own stadium and stuff like this. So I think for my first head coach job, I got so, so lucky with the people that were in the key positions around me. Um, and then because I got lucky with the support network, you can develop them because you're given the time to develop. Um, and we were lucky, you know, that we broke a few records in terms of 33 games unbeaten, uh, one calendar year unbeaten. Two, two years at home unbeaten um, and a great record of going to seven different competitions last day over four years and winning only one of them, which is a fantastic record. Uh, <laughs> so we lost two finals on penalties. We lost a COVID season on head-to-head -head when the rule was changed to head-to-head -head halfway through because they had to split the league in half, uh, top to bottom, uh, so I was, by the way, I'm not arguing. It was completely right that it was head to head. It couldn't have been goal difference. Uh, but yeah, we had a, a lot of pain and agony, but like we went, I went in personally with the kind of remit of, I want to build a real football club here. Um, and, you know, I'm still in touch with everyone there and they continue to go from strength to strength. So 
um, yeah, it was, uh, I think uh, I mentioned earlier that look, in all of our journeys, I think look, look plays a massive part. But I suppose crucially for all of us is, are you working? Are you educating yourself? And are you keep pushing the boundaries so that you're ready when the look comes your way? You know. Yeah, it seems like you've you've definitely set them up for success. I was just looking at the the league table in the Cambodian league now, and I think they're they're top of the league unbeaten. Um, play 10 one ten. So yeah, whatever you did there is surely yeah. one in the future. Uh, I'm not clever because in January, uh, so I moved to here to India in May. In January, I did something I never did with the owner, where I prioritized investment in the first team over everything else, and we basically the chairman got his checkbook out. We put together the best squad ever, and then getting it going into preseason, getting ready for the season. I said, "Right, guys, I'm off to India. I'll see you later." Um, but yeah, I've been here because it's slightly different. It's an hour and a half between here and Cambodia, and I'm in an apartment complex here in India, and uh, they've got a number of last time winners. So I've been here as a fan, kind of watching on the live stream and screaming and shouting. And I think uh, I think my neighbours here are beginning to worry about me, you know. So they're they're, they're hearing massive shouts because uh, I think there's been like four stoppage time winners, which which you know. Um, is as we all know as fans, as coaches, as players, it's an incredible feeling. Yeah, you'll be having the welfare check on your on your door soon as uh, the neighbours are knocking on. So you know, it seems yeah. like it seems like you you built a fantastic project with the FAI, and then obviously you went to Cambodia, built a fantastic project there. Is that kind of what's drawn you now to the the Indian Super League in terms of the building of a team? Yeah. So, like. One thing that attracted me here is some of the things are built already, so it's it's kind of like not not starting kind of on ground zero again, and it's now what can you can you add layers to what's been done already? Can you improve quality, uh, kind of quality management if you like around different departments, um, but vitally like we said earlier, you need to win games to be given the key to do all those things, and at the moment we're six games in, uh, we lost the first three and we drew. The last batch of trees. So, um, uh, the fans have been incredibly supportive. They've told us that that means we're going to win the next three games. Um, but yeah, I've I've got a big job job on my hands because there's nine nine players basically from last year uh, gone, and we had to do a rebuild, which no one likes to hear. But we had to do a rebuild, and a lot of kind of what we've signed locally is potential instead of proven because that's kind of the model of the club um, that we can't compete with the top three or four teams budget wise. So we've got to try and do a, a Brighton, I guess, and, and pick up some players that maybe we feel are undervalued and can be developed into to, to something. Um, and yeah, the, the, the club and the fans have been incredible actually so far in terms of the realize that it is a bit of a rebuild and, and they've been, I think too patient, actually. Um, you know that that um, um, I I'm a, I'm a little bit annoyed with our progress. Um, the players are, um, and some of the fans, of course, are as well. Um, but yeah, we we need to kind of kick on now. Um, because we're going into FIFA days, and then there's there's a, we've played six games. I think there'll be about eight games between these FIFA days and, and Christmas. 
and that those eight games will kind of make make or break our season. So it's yeah, well, similar think... to similar to the MLS here, there's a playoff system. So. Right. But I think in terms of like looking at your past, in terms of your start in Cambodia, like you said, was a little bit shaky to start with. But then it was it's all about the patience and, and trust in the process. And would a team like Brighton, as you mentioned, kind of give you that inspiration that like Brighton wasn't an overnight success and it was a case of it was slowly but surely built, bringing in the right players, bringing in maybe not the the prime players who are in their late 20s, early 30s, but bringing in maybe younger players who are hungry for it and who are going to believe the vision that you're trying to set. Yeah, and and like that's the thing when you come into a new league, a new country, a new culture, that um, the first six months are about listening and learning. And the thing about that listening and learning phase is it's, it's really good in the long run. Uh, but in the short term, uh, one of the struggles with listening is when you first go into a place, who do you listen to and who do you not listen to? Um, uh, when do you listen to yourself and your own experience that you have? Um, and like, it, ca- it can't all be about learning as well because you've got to win while you're on the way to, to buy the time to, to use that learning, if that makes sense. Um, so it is a balancing act always, and I always think that you know these roles that's they are balancing acts, uh, and it's about kind of probably one of the key skills in this job is knowing when not to listen. Um, um, and I do think the first six months when you go into a place, you're you're figuring out those things if that makes sense in terms of that this twenty percent of our workforce players, non-players. This 20% are going to be central to everything we do. Let's build everything around them. So right now, I, I, I probably, well, not probably, I definitely haven't determined who the 20% are, you know. Um, and, you know, what I've always said in the organizations I've gone into, make make the 70% of the organization want to be part of that 20% in terms of how they're valued, how they're they're they're, they're treated, not that you're treating anyone like a second-class citizen, by the way, but you know, having that leadership group, those core people that are really well looked after, and it's that they're positions that people are vying for. Um, and something we did in Swireen as well was have the ten percent and the ten percent of the people that are on the way out the door, and um, of the seventy percent that are your your let's say majority workforce, the reality is not everyone will be inspired by the twenty percent because some will realize that they just won't do the work or or have the skill set or whatever it might be to be part of the 20 but they might be motivated by the 10% that are on the way out the door so so yeah that's that's probably in the phase that we're in at the moment as an organization is under the kind of pre-agreed philosophies and and structures that we're going to build together um who who plays what part who's central um who needs more time to develop to figure out if they're central or not and 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 who do you need to lose because that's that's the one thing I think that differentiates professional sport from many other industries. You can have five restaurants on a street and all five can be successful and sometimes actually if if three or four of them are successful it's good for the fifth one if that makes sense in terms of you know there's 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 a knock on effect of that um in a positive way but it's not like that in football, you know, that that for for Man City to go well right now, Manchester United can't. Um, 
are certainly very difficult for 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 that to happen. So um, it's it is kind of dog dog eat dog in that way. Um, so it's it's trust the process now, but you also have to see results quickly. And um, I think that's that's part of the attraction. To go back to Jack's question, it is part of the attraction to the job as well because um, you know what you buy into in terms of values, principles, and and what you kind of want the organization you're part of to look like um but in the beginning you you don't know um how how to get that done in this place if that makes sense because it's not that um copy and paste presentation that you come in that that works everywhere yeah and these things everything you just said there can take time and i guess a question for you would be how do you also remain patient and take your time, but then also deliver the short-term goals in terms of it can't go too long before you're getting a win. Like you have to be winning games and trying to build this process. So you mentioned, obviously it's a balancing act. Like how do you, what skills have you learned over your coaching career that are really coming into tuition now? Yeah. So I would say like, when it comes to the short term, the biggest criticism I had from my former CEO was, that I put the long term of the club first all the time, that I maybe was kamikaze in terms of my own image, if that makes sense, in terms of there was times when I maybe made myself a sacrificial lamb. Um, and like, you know, he used to always say to me that like, you you need to survive as well. You know, you're that if you're the one with the vision that's going to help us get there and we believe you are, then you kind of have to survive to thrive type thing. and and I would say that that is something that I learned from him. Uh, he was a very good CEO to work under. That I still think that I wanted to make the long-term division decisions. Excuse me. That you know, if if you give me the choice of the short-term gain and this, but it's going to hurt us in the long run, I'll never take that decision. But there are decisions that you learn with experience that you know they're not going to kill you in the long run and you maybe need to make that decision now to get that that quick result and um whether or not i've learned that lesson i think we'll find out soon probably in the next next five six weeks you know connie sounds like um even though you've been in all these different places and different opportunities there are some um kind of constants within your own coaching philosophy that you've carried through on each one and at the same time you've had to adapt to different situations and I'm sure throughout you've learned and changed that philosophy as well how how important has it been for you to have a constant uh, style or coaching philosophy or has it changed a lot as you've had a, these different experiences yeah so I I'd be big on values and principles I think values and principles are things that you have to live by and values being on the human side principles on how you want the game to be played so um you know principles you you might sacrifice one for a game or, or but when, if you add five six principles up together that you're not sacrificing a lot of them so you know the principles that i'd be into is i'd like to have the ball rather than not have the ball i'd like to win the ball back as quickly as possible and i'd like to play as far away from my own goals and then you can go into all the lit, little sub principles if you like that you need to have to make those those bigger things happen. But that's kind of how I like watching the game, teams that play like that. It's what I believe in for coaching the game. And it helps that like 80% of leagues around the world are 
play the style that I've just described. So I, I think it doesn't hurt you if you can get your team to do those things. So those things would be a constant for me. But then there's that case of, you know, can you build up from the back immediately in the club that you're in? It's not always the case. So how do you dominate a football game, play far away from your own goals, win the ball back quickly if you can't build up from the back, if that makes sense? So so that's that's where the balance and the principle comes in in terms of having that flexibility to stay true to your principles of how you want the game to be played. Um, you need that flexibility, but it's also like you've got to be innovative in in how do we get to that end product because fundamentally I I believe that that end product is going to help you win short and long term uh, if you can produce that. And we see that at the moment, I think, you know, the Bournemouth appointment with Areola is an interesting one where, you know, he's someone that defends deep or defends high, for example, um, and you don't really ever see him uh, do too much in the mid block and it, it's interesting now to see a lot of what people are calling kind of hybrid coaches um, and like I, I find that interesting because if you look at a Bielsa or a, Klo or a Klopp or a Guardiola I would say where the three of them are aligned is they believe in what they believe in to the death uh, you know and maybe Bielsa is the real extreme there but like you know and, and they're kind of the top guys so It'll be interesting to see in a lot of kind of the next generation of coaches, these, these kind of hybrid systems, hybrid models, if they can sell that to players. You know, and there's a lot of talk about Spurs uh, going down to nine players and still having a high line. Like, it'll be interesting how that plays out um, for, in terms of trying to sell something to a group of players. And then, like, on the value side, the most simplest way I can explain, like, values when I go into an organization is, the best teams care about each other, you know, it's like, and you can, you can put six or seven nice human qualities on a wall if you want and paint it there. And that looks fantastic when sponsors come around, I think, or, but like, to, does the team care about each other? So like you, I think you can break everything down into that question, you know, that, that if you're not running for each other, working for each other, tidying up after each other, um, somebody's in the hospital because he's injured and you're not visiting him you don't care about each other and, and for me the best teams in the world like you want to break down the values of the best teams in the world they care about each other they might not all be best friends but definitely within the working environment you can break down their actions I think to that fundamental question that they, they have each other's backs and, and, and they fight and run for each other and um, that's probably cliche, but like it's it's. I think if anybody goes through their favorite teams from, you know, their childhood or whatever, or favorite team to watch right now, I think when you break down their football and actions, um, it's a team that's that 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 cares for one one another. No, I think that's a good point. I mean, Stu would probably look back at someone like Roy Keane and Peter Schmeichel, who I don't think got on very well, but on the field uh -huh. they'd always be backing each other up if anything ever happened yeah. right so yeah i think that's a good point what um what's what's been the biggest differences you've you've had to adapt to when you've been coaching in these different cultures when cambodia the language was huge because the, a lot of the players didn't didn't speak english or even irish english uh which is different um so so yeah in cambodia we really evolved over time where 
uh, you know, my final year, we were doing a presentation in one room in English and another presentation in Cambodian of, of like the opposition or whatever, um, because we got it down to where we felt we could minimize the time of the, the meeting and get the most impact out of it by taking the actual translation out. Um, on the pitch, uh, I would say uh, that barrier what wasn't so big, I ended up learning enough Cambodian to like say two banks of four or whatever it might be. Um, um, but like when you were going into big detail, uh, language was an issue. Um, so that's that's been tricky, less so in India because most players in India have good English. Uh, English is kind of the common language because there's about 11 different native uh, languages here in, in, in India. So people from different regions might not mightn't speak Hindi, for example. So sometimes English is the common language. So been less of an issue here. Um, and I think one of the big things in especially with like Cambodia and, and India is learning what's culture, like what 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 is culture? Like what's something that is their culture, meaning you can't touch it, you must respect it and you must like learn how to adapt because it's their country, not yours. Um, and what standards? Uh, and sometimes that can be a blurry line. Um, so for example, we're having some issues at the moment about pre-match meals, you know, where, where like some players want to have their pre-match meal seven hours before kickoff because it's 8 p.m. kickoffs. And it's like, well, look, sports science, nutrition doesn't doesn't really like care that for whatever reason you want to do that like like all human bodies are the same functionally and if if you feed it at the wrong time you're not going to have enough fuel to, to play so that's kind of like a standard one uh, and then there's some things that are very much cultural in terms of like how like um in cambodia the word bong would be like you uh, a male person or female person that's older than you you'd call them bong which is like big brother big sister or if they're slightly older it's like poo or ming which is is aunt or uncle and like it would be very important for you to address them that way um uh, or that would be like you know insulting so if you think about that within a player's context there was bongs within the 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 team so uh, and then the cultural, like, if you really want to dissect that, I'm deferring to you a little bit with that. It's like saying sir to somebody, you know, so so we had to try and respect that culture and keep that as part of, uh, you know, how people address each other. But on the pitch, we had to try and remove it because the left back had to be able to tell the left winger who was older than him to do what he was telling him to do in certain situations. And he didn't have time for formalities or, or, you know, to speak to him the right way type thing. So, so yeah, I think th those were challenges, but like there were interesting ones, you know, in terms of how do you tackle that and, and how do you get that message across without stepping on toes or without like offending, offending a nation possibly, you know, um, um, and a big one in Cambodia as well, like they're mo mostly Buddhists. And if you, you, you touch a Buddhist on the head, that's the nearest part to God. So you're kind of touching like their holiest part of them type thing. So you don't really pat them on the head. Whereas like 
you see look, new foreigners, you sign a new foreigner and he'd be someone to give him a good cross and he'd pat him on the head and you'd have to tell him straight away, like, don't, don't do that. That's, that's, that's insulting. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so yeah, there's, there's always kind of different things in different places you go. Um, uh, but I think it comes back to the caring thing. Like, you know, do you, do, when you go into a place, do you want to know about those things? Do you want to educate yourself? Um, and I, I probably had many instances with the staff where uh, the foreign staff that I would have hired over the years where we'd be driving back to home or whatever after training and there'd be conversations and you'd be kind of going, well, like, you know, that's not something that their parents taught them or that's not something that's in the education system here. And um, I think sometimes... You know, we all grew up in a Western world, watch Western television, and, you know, it's like that's the right way because that's what we know. Um, but it's it's not the right way for everyone, you know. Yeah, no, I think this episode's been a, a journey around the world, but also a, a learning journey as well. I, I've taken so much from you, Connor, so I, I really appreciate your time, um, obviously with the time difference as well. Um, really big thank you from obviously me and Jack for for coming on and just letting us understand a little bit more of your journey. And I'm sure it will give a lot of uh, value to a lot of listeners as well, hearing how you started out, probably how many, many coaches have started out at the grassroots level to where you are now. So no, really big thank you, Con. I appreciate you coming on. Um, Jack, any, any final words? No, I agree. I think uh, really insightful and also just some really intelligent ways of, thinking about things and observing things and, and thinking through processes which I think people will be able to take away and whether it's in the in their kind of a coaching career or or otherwise too in, in just general life or other careers as well um really insightful yeah so uh, we don't so we don't always uh always have fun we also get some learning experience from these podcasts yeah, as well. so yeah it appreciate it that makes a of. makes a nice chance to have some intelligent guests on of the last few we've had with Benton and uh, Brody and whatnot, so it's good. Well, I thought I didn't think you were going to mention Brody's name there when you said that. That's that's, <laughs> that's, that's, ruined, our... that's, that's ruined my evening. That is. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, Connor, thank you very much, and uh, we wish you and uh, Hyderabad the best of luck for the the next few games. Um, but before we wrap up, Jack, can you name the six players to have won the PFA Player of the Year? And have not won the Premier League. Uh, I've got a few. I noted a few down. So I don't know if I've got six though. Uh, Steven Gerrard. Correct. Luis Suarez. Correct. Gareth Bale. Correct. And then I had to dig down a bit more. David Ginola. Did he win Player of the Year? He did. Uh, and then another Newcastle on Tottenham. Les Ferdinand. And then, then one more. Yeah, then I'm struggling oh, on the last one. <laughs> what have we got, Connor? Paul McGrath is, is, is my one, no? Paul McGrath, PFA. Yeah. First year, yep, first year, you've got it. That's six. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't, to be honest, I would not have got that one. So That's a good tag, tag team now, partnership. Now, 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 Jack, I feel better for, for like uh, stealing the punchline that you might have had. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying intelligent guests coming in and getting the answer at the end there. Well, if it wasn't Paul McGrath, I mightn't have got it, to be honest. <laughs> Really, no. So we could definitely, uh, definitely do a part two of this. There's so much in the coaching journey that we could really delve into. But no, Connor, 
from both of us, we really thank you. Um, it's been a, it's a great episode from our point of view. All the best, boys. Thanks so much. Thank Thanks you, guys. Much. We we uh, we hope you have a good weekend, and uh, we look forward to next week. Thank you.